Because it's something that sends most of us scurrying indoors, few people witness what happens out in the landscape on a wet afternoon. And yet, almost every day, as natural and as inevitable as breathing, weather fronts form, clouds gather and rain falls, changing the way the countryside looks, smells and sounds, and how the living things in it behave. Hello and welcome to this wet weather podcast from Faber. My name is George Miller, and that was Melissa Harrison reading from Rain, Four Walks in English Weather. Melissa is a novelist, author of a monthly nature notebook column in The Times, and, in the words of Ali Smith, a nature writer, if ever there was one. Over the course of a year, Melissa went on four different walks, one in each season, all in wet weather, to reflect on and record the many facets of this quintessentially English weather. She visited the National Trust's first nature reserve, Wiccan Fen in Cambridgeshire, in January. In spring, she was in Shropshire. She experienced, indeed sought out, a thunderstorm in the Darent Valley in Kent in August, and in the autumn, she returned to Dartmoor, a place, as you'll hear, with family connections. Melissa's childhood experience of rain recurs at various points in the book. So when we met at Faber's offices on an atypically sunny February day, I began by asking her to tell me a little about that. I grew up in Surrey, and actually, to be honest, it was a surprise to me how much my childhood came up when I was writing this book. In fact, the whole book was an exercise in memory, which I hadn't expected. I thought I was writing a book about, you know, four parts of the countryside. We used to spend quite a lot of time on Dartmoor, where my grandmother lived, and Dartmoor gets quite a lot of orographic rainfall, which is rain caused by air moving over high ground. And there was no way really that you could spend time on Dartmoor and decide to stay in when it was wet. You just, you wouldn't get any time outdoors at all. So we all got used to walking in wet weather. This was in the 70s, cheap cuckoos and soggy flares and, you know, leaky trainers. But we were a family who, uh, we spent most of our time outdoors and we were constantly told by my father to rise above it. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's good advice. I think if you love the countryside and you only visit it in fair weather, then it's like loving music and only listening to songs in a major key. You know, you're missing half of the experience. In addition to walking around in a cagoule in the rain, were you also a child who was kind of tuned into to birds and animals and, and living things um, that, that you would later go on to write about? You kind of um, sensitised to those things early on. Mm, very much so. But I think that was a lot easier in the, in the 70s and early 80s. You know, children were allowed to spend all day playing outside unsupervised and and probably I'm part of the last generation that was allowed to do that and I think part of the boom in in what's commonly called nature writing at the moment is to do with that generation hitting their 30s and 40s and realizing that there's perhaps nobody coming after them their own children perhaps and, and the children of their friends are are not climbing trees are not damming streams and are not being sent out to play until they're hungry and come back for their for their dinner and a childhood like that, it's very hard to come out of it without an understanding of birds and trees and natural places. Um, you know, it's something that left me as a teenager, as I think it does with a lot of people. Lots of other distracting things come along, like boys and clothes and things like that. But when I found myself living in London and incredibly miserable and incredibly lost, it was nature that I turned back to um, on a trip to Dartmoor. I went back to the places I'd gone to as a child and, and realised that that's what I needed and that was what was missing from my life. By the time we're coming down off Dartmoor, the mizzle has thickened again. 
We passed through a gate fastened with a lovely old iron latch, twisted and looped and hung with a single silver droplet of rain, and take a sunken farm track down into the valley. The old bitumen has been entirely lost from the two edges, which now gurgle with fast water. A channel has also been scored through the centre, exposing the loose stones and rubble beneath. At some point during the long, wet winter, it's clear that a great quantity of water ran off the moor and down this lane. On a day like today, you can see and hear the rain coming down off the moor in a thousand places. Tiny becks and rills, too small even to have a name, creep in creases through peat or make use of paths. Water sheets sideways across roads and trickles down field drains. It gurgles at roadsides and swells the moorland streams where it can find them until they roar white and unstoppable on stony beds. I've amalgamated several trips into each walk. So some of them I, I hit the right weather straight away. Some were places that I go to or, or was going to at the time quite frequently, like Shropshire. So that was quite easy because um, I was visiting uh, my in-laws anyway. I've been coming to Shropshire for 10 years now to visit my husband's parents, who live in a little village near the Rekin, a large, dramatic hill not far from the M54. At first, the area was slow to reveal its beauty. The unpretentious farmland that makes up the bulk of the county seemed, at first, to have neither the cosy charm of the West Country nor the wide-open appeal of the Fens. It crept up on me, though, a worked and working landscape, full of cows and sheep, and largely unbothered by tourists. Now I have its measure, like music heard enough times to become intelligible. When I walk its narrow lanes, as I do today, its hedges and fields and farms have a particularity, half seen, half sensed, that I can't help but respond to. So the, the book kind of describes moments in the year as well as four different, very, very different landscapes. Yes, the seasons are incredibly important to me as a, as a natural rhythm that governs, well, our, our whole lives, really, our whole existence. And it's something that I think is very easy to lose touch with in the city. And it was lovely to, to write another book that, that captured each of the four seasons. And you say at one point that rain is so simple and primordial, it can, it, even today with all our sophistication and technology, it can still spoil our plans. And I guess we tend to think of it as something which spoils a walk or a trip, rather than something which might in some subtle way in, enhance it or change our perception. So I guess, that, I guess that's what the book is trying to do, is trying to maybe give Rain a better price. Absolutely. And, and when you look at um, nature writing, most of it takes place in dry weather, which is an odd thing given how much rainfall we have in this country. So the book was partly an attempt to redress that balance, to, to, to say, this is how the countryside we all love looks in wet weather, we need to look at it all the time. And because most people run indoors when it rains, we're missing so much. How do you physically prepare yourself for a, for a walk in, in wet weather? How much better kitted out do you have to be not to end up really soggy and grumpy? I think the two things are dry feet, so waterproof boots or boots with a Gore-Tex lining, and a hood with a peak to keep the rain off your face. How do you record? Are you kind of recording internally your impressions or are you somehow managing to scribble down some, you know, some descriptions or some thoughts even though the rain is, is lashing down? Well, in dry weather, I often take pictures either with my big camera or sometimes just with my iPhone, just as notes really for when I get home. But obviously I don't want to take any equipment out in wet weather. So it's, it's trying to keep it all in my head and then write it down quickly when I get back. 
But do you sometimes have a moment where you just, you just think of the perfect description, you see something and there and then you think, yes, that's, that's what that looks like. That's how I'm going to describe it. Yes. And some of them get lost and that's inevitable. You know, there's all sorts of lovely images and metaphors that I've come up with that have been lost in the midst of time. Now, the book isn't just about your own personal experience of walking in the rain. There are also sort of layers of, of history, of human, of human history and, and natural history in the book. I mean, tell me a bit about the human history and how you investigated how previous generations or previous centuries have responded to rain. Well, fortunately, a lot of this research had been done for me. So there are lots of books that we have about uh, the history of, of weather forecasting. Peter Moore wrote a fantastic book last year called The Weather Experiment. And there's, there's a great library out there of books about the weather, which I was able to draw on. I particularly liked George Merriweather, a Victorian inventor who came up with a, an incredible device. Yes, the Tempest Prognosticator, which he exhibited in, at the Great Exhibition in uh, 1851. And this was a, a device which was supposed to foretell the weather, or particularly storms. And it consisted of 12 small bottles, each with a leech inside, which were arranged in a circle um, so that the leeches could see one another and not be lonely. And the idea was that when there was a storm approaching, the leeches would crawl up the inside of the bottle and depress a whalebone lever, which would ring a bell. And George believed firmly that um, he could rig this up to the bell in St. Paul's and provide a, a national warning system for storms. It didn't catch on? Unsurprisingly not. Now, one of, one of the other really interesting things about the book, I thought, was the way you evoke how the natural world responds to rain. I mean, how animals and, and birds in particular. For example, I didn't, I didn't know that owls had a particular, we could say, aversion to, to wet weather. Why is that? Yes, owls um, are designed for almost silent flight. And the compromise that they've made for that is that their feathers become waterlogged very easily. So to, to uh, reduce wind sound, their feathers have a fimbriate margin, which is very finely serrated, and they also have powder on their feathers. And obviously, as you, as you can imagine, rain on, on, on that kind of surface is just easily soaked up. So they take shelter in stormy weather. You quote from some manuals and prognosticators and, and ways in the past that we can sort of feel, we can feel amused by the way they tried to interpret the weather. But, the, but I suppose there's a more serious point to the book that, that we are in danger of losing touch with the natural environment, being less sensitive to it and, and less able to read it, I suppose. We are. And you can see reading all sorts of, of literature, not, not even just literature concerned with the countryside, but in the past people knew for instance, little things like where uh, bad weather would come from for their location. So they would know that, you know, we always get storms from the west, wherever in the country they were. Or there, there are lots of little rhymes about when a particular hill is wearing a hat, i.e. a cloud, it means certain kind of weather is going to come. And that was common knowledge. So people were, were um, very closely attuned to the weather in the past. And that's something we've lost very, very recently, probably around the time of the Second World War. Where, where, where we no longer depended on it, I guess. Yes, we've devised all sorts of ways to keep ourselves safe from the weather, and, and that's lovely. But they only go so far. And I think in doing that, in coddling ourselves, we've made the natural world seem harsher and more frightening than it actually is. And we're, we're losing an enormous amount of joy. As part of the project, you collected an amazing number of words for different kinds of rain from all over the country. Were you surprised by just how much material you came up with there? 
Yes and no. I've been a fan of Victorian dialect glossaries for a long time. There was a particular fad in that era for going around the country. This was particularly underemployed country parsons um, would cycle around and collect country law and wisdom and, and country words. And, and there are glossaries for, I think, every county in Britain. And I went and consulted these at Gladstone's Library in North Wales and for two weeks immersed myself in stacks and stacks of these wonderful old books. And they reveal a lost world, and, and some of the, the words are, are, are just are, are moving and fascinating. And it would have been a surprise had they not had lots of words for rain. But even so, as I began to assemble them, it, it wasn't so much the number, but the, the texture, the depth of meaning, the different types of rain that we, we mostly now just call rain. Cow Quaker, an English word describing a sudden storm in May after the cows have been turned out to pasture. Letty from Somerset. Enough rain to make outdoor work difficult. Dabbly. Moist air, adhesive like wet linen. Suffolk. Planets. In Northamptonshire, extremely localised rain falling on one field but not another is said to fall in planets. I think a lot of the words that I assembled uh, have fallen out of use, sadly, and I think there's a, a movement amongst all sorts of nature writers at the moment to reclaim old words because in doing so you reclaim um, the detail and the texture of the natural world and you resist what Robert McFarlane's memorably called the landscape which is the green hill and the anonymous tree and a road going past it that you don't know the name of. So naming things cre creates particularity and creates engagement and that's, I think that's very important. Right, right at the start, Mel, you talk about the pleasurable kind of melancholy that you can get in the rain. But is it always melancholy or a, a whole, is there a whole range of emotions that the rain can provoke in you when you're walking? Oh, absolutely. Joy, excitement, you know, the feeling of being outside in the middle of a thunderstorm is extraordinarily exciting and a little bit worrying too. I think the association between rain and negativity is due to um, films and literature where it's often used as a pathetic fallacy to provide a backing for sadness and drama and um, usually quite negative scenes. So in conclusion, you'd say, don't be lily levered, get some decent waterproof boots and make sure your hood covers your head, but get out there and, and learn to appreciate the rain. I think we're all missing a lot if we always stay inside in wet weather. <laughs>